Uh, well, good morning. Uh, you probably all know this, so I'm just, I'm just telling you what you already know, but July uh, 29th would have been the, uh, the 40th anniversary of the wedding of the century. You all know what I'm talking about. No. Okay. Uh, Prince uh, Charles and Princess Diana were married July 29th, uh, 1981. It was a gigantic spectacle. Uh, there was uh, reportedly uh, estimated around 750 million people watched on TV. Uh, another 250 million people uh, listened on radio. Uh, there was 3,500 uh, 3, guests at the ceremony itself, plus all the people lining the streets to watch this crazy processional. They, they changed the churches uh, from, from the usual Westminster Abbey over to uh, St. Paul's Cathedral so that the parade route could be longer, uh, so that they could fit more guests inside the church. It, th- this was a, a momentous occasion. It was heard around the world. People knew what was happening. Um, the point of the wedding, obviously, was Prince Charles and, and Princess Diana coming together, being, being married, uh, going into a covenant relationship. Uh, they vowed these, these certain things, expectations of them, of how they were going to live, how they were going to treat each other, what life was going to look like uh, as they were married. Uh, to to uh, commemorate the 40th anniversary, somebody has held on to a piece of cake from the wedding. Uh, and so they are now selling it uh, 40 years later. Uh, $700 is the uh, estimated price that they're going to be hoping for. Uh, but don't worry, it's not just a piece of cake that's inedible. There's also some program from the, the ceremony and something else that comes along with it. Uh, the sad part is that cake has lasted longer than the marriage. Um, we know that from the beginning, that, that marriage, as we've watched The Crown, uh, that it was doomed from the start and before the start. Um, we should have all paid attention when Princess Diana actually called Prince Charles the wrong name during the vows. That's never a good sign of where this thing is headed. The point being, They didn't just need this amazing ceremony. They didn't just need this spectacle for a marriage to work. The point was that they were supposed to not just say vows and go through this process. They were supposed to actually live them out. The point was that they were making a promise to one another till death do us part. And neither of them wanted to live up to that standard. We know that there was uh, other people in the relationship. They were unfaithful to one another. Uh, The marriage didn't seem happy from the beginning. It ended in divorce. What they needed to do wasn't just go through the motions. What they needed was to live out the vows. Our passage this morning is a bit like this. Uh, Psalm 50 is where we're going to be looking today. If you have your Bibles, welcome you to flip there. Psalm 50 uh, is kind of the, the, the same boat. There's a, there's a rocky patch. You know, years earlier, uh, starting in Exodus 19, there is this amazing, uh, amazing uh, experience that happens for, for the Israelites. They've come out of Egypt. They've, they've come into the desert. Uh, God has, has saved them from their slavery. And now he has met them on Mount Sinai. And at this, this mountain, he is, he is declaring his love for his people His desire to enter into a relationship with them that will be eternal, that will last forever, that he will be a faithful God and that they will be his faithful people. There's expectations. There's a chapter after chapter of what the people are required to do, how they're expected to live in relationship with this this God. And unfortunately, we know that the reason we're here in Psalm 50 is that things didn't always go well. In fact, right from the beginning, it seemed like things were going to go wrong. 
What the people needed wasn't just a big ceremony. What they needed was a change of heart that lived out these, these vows, these promises that they were making to their God. We see that unlike Prince Charles and, and Princess Diana, it's not two sides that have sinned and erred. It's, it's one side. God has remained faithful to his people throughout their rebellion, their wickedness. They're running away from him. They needed their hearts to be fully in, and they weren't. In Psalm 50, what we're going to see is, is these three things. We're going to see the God who summons, who he is, and how he is not like us, how he is worthy to, to bring us and to summon us, to, to give ear to what he has to say. And he also is the God who speaks. We need to hear his message, his warning, and what he has for us, that there's judgment for coming for those who don't repent. And finally, we'll see the God who saves And salvation, like the covenant, is a work that God has done, that he has invited us into, a result of his work, not ours. And it's lived out and put on display in us and through us in our obedience and our thanksgiving. So read with me uh, Psalm 50, verses 1 to 6. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Would you pray with me as we start? Father, we are a people who have been summoned here today that God, your word calls to us. It invites us to listen, to to humble ourselves before you and to see who you are, what you're like. And I pray this morning that would be true of us, that as we come before your word, as we listen to what it says, that we would hear you speaking to us. God, we would hear your your warning. We would hear your uh, just judgment. And God, we would repent and we would turn. That God, we would see that you have offered us salvation, that you have done the work through your son to save and to redeem a people who would look like you, who would act like you, God, who would love you with their whole hearts and whole minds, with their whole lives. So we pray that today, God, as we look at this passage, that we would hear you and that we would respond to you. We pray this, God, in your great name. Amen. So the first thing that we see in these verses is the God who summons. Who is it that calls? Who is, who is worthy to call heaven and earth? To call the angels and all of humanity to, to sit in on his judgment, to sit in on his, his words that he's going to speak to us. Who should we listen to? Who would we stand up and pay attention to? Uh, my wife and I uh, saw the tail end of a movie called uh, The Green Book. It's a, a story, uh, a true life story uh, adapted for movie, which means you don't know what's actually true. Um, but it's a story of, uh, of an Italian named Lip who is uh, kind of from a, a poor family in, um, in New York. And uh, he, he gets a job as a chauffeur for this man named uh, Shirley. And Shirley is this, this pianist, this amazing pianist, but he's also black, and he's going to be going on this tour through the south, and so he wanted to have a chauffeur, somebody to help him, protect him, drive him. And so on the way, uh, there's, there's many uh, issues that go down, uh, and there's, there's uh, lots of learning for Lip to, to understand uh, the life that, that Shirley lives, 
But uh, once, uh, as they're driving, uh, he, he kind of gets out of control when the police stop him and pull him out of the car, uh, and they, they start treating him and Shirley poorly. And Lip doesn't handle it very well, especially when uh, the police calls him a racist name and he punches him, uh, and they wind up in jail. In jail, Shirley is obviously uh, disappointed in, in his lack of control. Uh, and these, these police officers who are, are racist, they will not listen to their calls for release, their calls uh, to even have a phone call until Shirley finally breaks him down after time after time asking. Finally, he's allowed to phone his lawyer. He phones his, his lawyer, and his lawyer phones back, and the chief, when he first picks up the phone, uh, doesn't believe who it is on the other end. And so he goes to hang up, and, and, and the, the other police officers tell him not to. So he listens and, and realizes who it is on the other end of the, of the phone, and he stands up. And everything changes when he realizes who's on the other end of the phone. He stops treating Lip and Shirley poorly, stops uh, making fun of them, stops being racist towards them. In fact, he, he releases them, he apologizes to them, uh, he, he, he makes sure everything is, is all right. And when one of the, the police officers with him tries to stop him from doing this, he, he, he rips them apart, just berates him for, for not listening and obeying. Uh, something changed drastically with that one phone call, with who it is that phoned. And so in the, in the car ride, as they're driving away, Obviously, Lip is ecstatic that he got to punch a police officer and, and just walk away. And he says, who, who was it on the phone? Who was your lawyer? And he says, Bobby Kennedy called, the attorney general. Now, who matters is the person calling on the other, other end of the line. Like, that, that's important. You're going to pay attention to somebody who, who has control over your job. I mean, if Bobby Kennedy wanted to ruin you as a police chief, he would. There's, there'd be no stopping him. Who is it? that we'll listen to. Because sometimes I can, I can read through psalms and I can see these, these beautiful poetic uh, psalms that are, are filled with this beautiful language and these wonderful things of what God has done and, and these, these calls for, for how we should respond. But I often, I, I often forget the majesty and the eternal attributes of this God who's writing this to me. I often forget who's speaking and summoning me and I can read it just like another piece of poetry. And so I wanted to start us off with just that, that gentle reminder of who it is that summons us. So let me walk through a few of these verses and show you how God reveals himself, what his attributes are. He starts off in verse 1 with calling himself the mighty one. And he calls himself most high in verse 14. There is no one greater. There is no one higher. There, there is no one beyond. He, he is the, the pinnacle. He is the, the peak. He is the utmost. There is there's nothing beyond him. Which means, if that is the one who is speaking to me, I should probably humble myself and listen. If, if people bow when the queen walks in a room, shouldn't I stand up and pay attention to the God who summons me? This is the God of the covenant calling. He also calls himself the judge in verse 6. He's declared righteous. He's perfect and right in everything he does. He is the only one who is able to make perfect judgment. Everything he does is perfect and just, which means even if I am in the crosshairs, I should sit up and pay attention to his judgment because it's the right one. In verse 7, he's the personal God. I am God, your God. He is not just far off and away. He, he does not leave us to ourselves. He knows us intimately and he welcomes us into relationship with him. And obviously, as New Testament Christians, we look and we see that he has made all the more personal as he walked with us in the person of Jesus. 
He is the creator and the sustainer, the God over all in verse 10 and 11. He's the one who made everything. He is the one who gave us everything that we need and required. Everything is under his control. Everything is under his command. Oh, what a wonder it is that the only God of the universe who created all, sustains all, would actually know us and welcome us into relationship with him. In verse 12, he shows himself self-sufficient. He waits for nothing. He is needy for nothing. He is satisfied in himself. Creation is not some project that he did because he was bored or he needed somebody to, to talk about him because he, he needed it. Which means he doesn't do this because it brings him anything he needs. He's the one who can deliver us in verse 15. Call on me in your day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Because there is no one greater than him, there is no one who can deliver us from him. Which means that we need him. To have a God that doesn't need us, doesn't need to save us from our sin, doesn't need to redeem us, but actually takes a personal cost to redeem and deliver us should make our hearts be filled with thanksgiving and joy. In verse 21, he's patient, he's unique, and he's different than us. He's not like us. We, we see his patience and his forbearance passing over sin and being gracious and merciful to humanity that doesn't deserve it. We are not like him. In verse 22 and 23, it says that he holds salvation and wrath. Deliverance and destruction. He is the one who saves, and he is the one that we need salvation from. The first question obviously comes like this How do you see God? When you describe him and when you think about him, when, when you do your devotions and you're reading through scripture, when you're praying, how do you approach God? How do you, how do you see him? How do you think about him? When you share the gospel, who is this God that you share? See, the way that we see God will determine the way we respond to God. If we see God as small, not in control, if we, if we see God as not good, we will respond intuitively in a way that reflects that. The way we see God will determine our response to him. Is he worthy of your attention, your respect, and your honor? This is the God who speaks to us. And when he speaks, he has the authority to gather all of heaven and all of earth. Will we listen to the God who summons when he speaks? Because the God who speaks speaks a very important message. This is the second thing that we see. Read with me verse 7 to 22. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the, the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call on me in your day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. 
You sit and you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. What a message that the people needed to hear and understand the weight of. This warning of coming judgment. They're supposed to be his chosen people. They made a solemn vow with God. Every year they would repeat this covenant promise. But the vow hadn't made the people love God. Their, their worship was deficient. And it didn't fulfill the law that they had agreed to. What God saw in his people, as Spurgeon put it, is this. The futility of external worship when spiritual faith is absent and the mere outward ceremonial is rested in. To put it another way, the actions and the words are there. They showed up at the right time and in the right place, but their heart wasn't in it which means it was useless, it was futile. They thought that going through the motions, that showing up, that, that doing the right things at the right times, that offering the right sacrifices was what God wanted. They thought that God wanted obedience and, and fulfillment of the ceremony, that it would be enough to continue in this relationship they were in. It's like the, the, the worker that shows up like exactly on time, like not a minute, not a second early, and, and clocks out as soon as the bell rings. I mean, they're, they're not cleaning their workstation. They're not doing anything. It is, I mean, not, my time is done. They're the person who doesn't do anything above what's asked of them at work. I mean, they, they are doing the bare minimum just to make it by. They just want to get paid. Like, just give me my job. I'll, I'll, I'll do what I need to do. Not a great worker. It's like the, the, the spouse who, who puts food on the table. Sure, they provide, but man, when they show up to the table, they're disinterested. They don't really care. They don't really want to be there. They show up for birthdays. They, they buy the gifts for the, the right times of year. You know, birthdays, anniversaries. We'll do flowers. We'll do a, a birthday dinner here and there. But man, they're just really looking forward to getting back to their own life. They're not doing it because they, they love you. They're doing it because they, they need to. It's the, the duty side they just want to know what's required of them to make this thing work. But God requires worship, like proper worship, not just ceremony. If, you, if you're not part of the church, if, you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might be sitting here going, what is this all about? This, this God who requires worship and, and obedience, this God who requires thanksgiving, what is, what is this all about? This sounds vain. It sounds selfish, self-serving. It sounds like this God is insecure and requires people to pump his tires so that he'll be, re reward them, allow them to live another day, to breathe another breath. But what if worship, what if thanksgiving isn't actually for God, it's for us? What if it's actually for our hearts that, that worship and thanksgiving help our hearts and mind understand the greatness of God and tune our hearts to love him? See, what they and we are supposed to see is the true meaning of sacrifices. The true meaning of sacrifice and worship. The Old Testament sacrifices weren't for God. They were for the people. You might say, no, no, no. Like God instituted the sacrificial system to, 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 to reveal that he would look over their sin and he would be, be with them. He couldn't be with them while they were sinning. So the sacrificial system was to take care of their, their sin. It was for God. They were, they were giving stuff to God. 
But the sacrificial system never satisfied the wrath of God. It never, never appeased God. It never took care of sin, which is why we needed Jesus. It was ceremony. It was, it was rhythm. It was a pointer to something that they needed. It was supposed to remind the people of their great sin, their great need. It was to remind them of the great God that had welcomed them into covenant relationship. Without them earning it, without them doing anything, that he had made a way for them to continue in this relationship, even with the presence of sin there. It was supposed to drive them to see the providence, the protection, and the, uh, and the provision of God. When you look at verse 10 and verse 12, God's not waiting for a sacrificial gift like he lacks something or needs something. He's not waiting for us to provide him with anything. He owns it all. Everything we are, everything we have, everything we see is, is God's. That's what he makes so clear. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. God's not hungry. He's not bloodthirsty waiting for us to appease him and make us right with him. Do we think that we are that important or that a blood of an animal is that worth that is worth that much that it would actually appease a holy God. He is the one that must make it right. He is the one who is greater. We are lesser. Nothing that we have, nothing that we can do gives God anything that he doesn't already have. And God lacks absolutely nothing. He is self-sufficient. He is perfect. He is eternal. He is satisfied in himself. And even our worship is unnecessary for his pleasure and his happiness. Doesn't mean he doesn't want it or welcome it, but he doesn't he doesn't need it for him to be complete and whole. We see this clearly in the fact that, that God redeemed the people, the Israelites, out of Egypt before they had done anything. He, he saved them through the plagues. He saved them through the Red Sea. He saved them through the desert, provided food and water. He, he saved them uh, on the mountain by not allowing them to be destroyed in his presence. He, he saved them through the, the people that he brought them through to the promised land. God did all of the work and the people were supposed to respond to it. What foolishness for a child on, on Christmas morning, after he's gone out and he's shopped for his, his mom and his dad, to bring a gift that was paid for by his mom and dad. Don't wrap it. No note, no card. Just drop it at their feet and walk away, thinking that they'd done a good thing. We can go out and buy anything we need to when we want to, but... It, what I want is I want, I want to see your heart for me. I want to see that I've given you everything that you, you need. And I want to see you respond to my love. What the sacrifices were supposed to do was provide a reminder for the people to live a life of thanksgiving. This is the true meaning of the sacrifices. This is what God wants. The question for us today is, what's the purpose of this gathering? What, what's the purpose of our tithes? Uh, you know, when we, when we give money, what, what's the purpose of communion when we take that, that bread and that juice or that wine? What, what's the point of our singing? What's the point of our baptisms? What, what's the point of all the ceremony that we do each week? What is it that we think we achieve in it? It's the worship that God wants from us when we sing, when we give, when we obey, when we live, when we do everything is one of thanksgiving for the salvation that we have received. It's a response to what God has done for us and the relationship that he has welcomed us into. 
True acceptable worship is a response of the heart and the mind that sees our current state as loved, as chosen, as saved, as heirs of a promise that cannot be taken from us, that lasts for eternity, and that only comes from God because God has saved us. Ephesians 2, 4 to 10 says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to walk in those good works that God has prepared for us because of what he has, has done. And if this view of God and the work that he's done to save us and reveal himself to us doesn't lead to thanksgiving, I don't think we understand salvation. I don't think we understand what we've been saved from. And I don't think we understand who has welcomed us into relationship with him. What are you thankful for? Like, what do you, what do you thank God for? What do you... What do you tell people you're thankful for? The true meaning of worship is thanksgiving. God's second warning is, is pointed to the one pretending. It's, it's to the, the Pharisee, the New Testament language that we would use. This person who, who knows the law, understands the law, is able to teach the law even, and yet goes out and, and doesn't actually do what they say. They, they, they know how to talk the talk, but they don't actually walk it out. They don't live it out. In fact, they walk on the, on the wild side. What we, what we see in our passage isn't just uh, a disobedience, but it, it's, it's outright wickedness and rebellion. These people hated to be disciplined, to be told that they weren't living the way they should. They rejected the, the prophets, the people sent by God to warn them and to draw their hearts back to them. They didn't submit to what God had said and called them out in. They didn't call out the sin in others either. And, and worse, they entered into it with them, with the thief, the adulterer, even though they claimed to know the law. They used the same mouth that claimed the promises of the covenant to go and curse their families to tear them down, to be filled with slander, to speak evil, to deceive, and to lie. When we look at the nation of Israel, we see that at many times and in many places, they were a people who, who were wicked and who were rebellious. And God dealt with them. He disciplined them. He warned them. And ultimately, he, he did destroy them. He, he did judge them. But big pushback is, why not now? I mean, why so many warnings God, it doesn't seem like you actually really, really care. Why have you been silent in the past? You say so yourself. And why are you just speaking up now? We're waiting for the lightning bolts and, and, and the earthquakes. We're waiting for, you know, everything to come that's apocalyptic on these people who, who don't love you even though they know they, they should. But God has noticed it's not empty threats that he's bringing, but it's a, a desire to discipline them, to warn them that if they continue to reject them, there will be judgment that comes. God is telling them that they have to deal with their rebellion. If they want to continue in this covenant relationship, they have to deal with their sin. And in his patience, he's not like us. He doesn't 
put up with conflict because he doesn't like it or makes it un- uncomfortable. Like, that's how I deal with conflict. He's not like that. He's not lazy. He's not unaware. He's patient, and his love for his people is steadfast. He desires nothing more than that a people would repent and confess their sin and turn to him, that would love him. His desire is not to destroy, but his desire is to save. The true meaning of the law, all the rules, all the regulations, was not to earn salvation or continued love. It was to show that God was not like us. That God in his salvation actually looks over our our sin until Jesus That as we look at the salvation we've received, at what God has done, that our heart would be transformed, that a thankful heart would actually spring up, that obedience would come because there's no other way that we could live. We don't obey to earn. We don't obey to give God back or to look good. We obey because God has created us for a purpose. He has sustained our lives with every breath we take and ultimately he saved us from the darkness of our sin and shown us what being made in his image is really like what we can live like because of the work in our lives. Ephesians 2.10, again at the end, says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But he continues in chapter 4, 1 and 13 saying, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We're saved for a purpose. We're We're not saved for nothing. And the purpose that we've been called to and saved to is to grow up into the fullness of Christ. The end goal for us as people who have been saved is not just to enjoy life and whatever we want until eternity comes and we just get to go and be with God. The the purpose of our lives from now to eternity is to grow up into the fullness of God, that we would look and walk around like many Jesuses, that we would look more and more, that God would be changing us from one degree of glory to another, that we would look and sound and walk and talk and act more and more like Jesus in our everyday lives. We don't do it to earn salvation. We do it because we have been saved. Uh, I used this illustration uh, a few months ago when I was talking with the youth, but uh, it, it fits here really well. Uh, William, our second child, uh, he graduated from preschool a few months ago. His grades were great, so we got him a car. Um, <laughs> my daughter had also graduated from the same preschool uh, two years earlier, and, uh, and one of the things that they do is at the end, they hold up a sign that says, when I grow up, I want to be a blank. Now they're expecting you to, to say, I want to grow up and be a pilot or a doctor. Uh, Jay was in the first one, and nobody wants to be a lawyer uh, when they grew up, so he felt good about that. Um, but when, when I grew up, what do I want to be? Well, Avia, two years ago, hers uh, was, was inspired. Um, she wanted to grow up to be a famous baker first. Uh, and when she was done being a famous baker, not just a baker, a famous baker, uh, and then she, when she was done being a famous baker, she wanted to go and be a famous singer, uh, and then when she was done with that, she wanted to go and be a teacher so that she could boss people around and be in charge. She's working on that every single day with her brothers right now. Now, whatever, it didn't warm my heart too much. Uh, not like Williams. See, Williams was a little bit different. He said, when I grow up, I want to be, be like daddy. I was like, Phew. I wouldn't say I had a favorite kid, (laughs) but uh, his gifts were bigger this year. Um, This is the heart that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to want to grow up to be like our dad, like our big brother, Jesus. 
The reason that we've been created, Genesis 1 tells us that we were made in the likeness and the image of God, that we would be like him. And the reason that we have been saved and that we have been redeemed is that we would be like him, that we would grow up into the fullness of Christ, like Ephesians 4.13 says. We obey because there's no other response we can think of than a, a heart that is filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. We want to obey because we've seen the great work that God has done in us, for us, in spite of us. We are not saved because we've done anything. We're, we have not been attractive. We have, we've done nothing to earn it. And yet God has stooped down to serve us through the person of Jesus to die on the cross, live a perfect life, and rise victoriously over sin and death to welcome us into an eternal life. We live obediently, not because we do anything to earn. We, we do it because God has given it to us. He has, he has extended to us the free gift of salvation. Like Ephesians 2 says, it is a, a gift of God. The more and more we see the salvation we've received, the more and more we want to be like him. And the more and the more that we want to be like him, the more we see that there's nothing that satisfies our heart besides being like him. There's nothing in this world that gives us the, the lasting joy that we so desperately need. That the, the fulfillment and the satisfaction that we've been created for is found only in God. That there is no, no other thing in this world that God has created that satisfies no sex, no amount of money, no amount of, of trips and vacation, no amount of, of things and stuff and people and relationships will ever fill the hole we were created to be, to be filled by, by God alone. Every single thing that we put into our lives, we need more of because it never satisfies. It fades. It goes away. It's, it's momentary pleasure that's fleeting. There's always the next night that you need to party, the next night you need to drink, the next, the next thing you need. One of the theological things that this year uh, I, I, was, I was learning and that's blown me away is this idea that God is infinite. And on the surface that sounds, yeah, of course he's infinite. The idea is that in eternity, no matter how long I am with God, no matter how much I look into the person and the work, the attributes of God, I will never fully know him. And, and, and you might think, well, that, that seems bad. No, no, it means that there will never be a day that I see God, that I look at God, that I think of God, and something doesn't make me worship him more. That something doesn't bring fuller fulfillment like, I'm already, I'm already satisfied knowing God, being in heaven for eternity, but, but that there would be more to learn and that for eternity, I would never stop knowing more. I, I would never cease to be blown away by God. I, I would never stop finding happiness in God for eternity. There is nothing in this earth that does that. The more and the more that I see the salvation that I've received, the more I want to be like him, and the more that I want to be like him, the more I experience him, and the more that I experience him, the more I realize there is nothing else that satisfies. The warning we get from God is that our disobedience and our rebellion is lining us up for destruction, not satisfaction. We may fool ourselves into thinking that we can get away from our sin because, well, God hasn't done anything yet. There's no judgment yet. 
Maybe if I just keep saying the right things, showing up at the right times, everything will be okay. Maybe that's enough for God. But it's not. God warns us this, this lifestyle of, of trying to live two citizenships, two, two lives, is going to come up empty. It's not going to do what we actually want it to do. So the question that I have for us is, are there habitual sins, sins that you willingly walk in, that, that, that you are going back to purposefully, that, that you think bring satisfaction, that bring joy? Are there things like that in your life that you have not repented of, confessed of, and turned from? Are there areas in your life that when you sit and you read the Bible or, or you, you're here on a Sunday morning and you're, you're singing these songs that your heart is feeling tugged and torn but you don't want to listen to it? God is clear that to live a life claiming faith in him, claiming Jesus' life and death and resurrection as your hope, but living a life in habitual rebellion is a clear marker that we haven't understood salvation. See, holy living is evidence of salvation. A transformed life is evidence that you understand what God has done for you. C.H. Spurgeon uh, put it this way. These filthy things must be either purged from us by the blood of Jesus, or they will kindle a fire in God's anger which will burn even to the lowest hell. If you've been living with habitual sin, with, with sin that you go back to, that you try to find joy in, thinking that it's okay because it's just it's one thing. It's a, it's a couple things. It's just a few things. It's a couple problems that I have. But think that it's, it's still good because I, I do these Christian things that I'm supposed to. I show up when I need to. I, I, do, I, I put in the work sometimes. You have to repent and you have to turn. You have to find somebody to walk with you. Someone who, who can help you put sin to death. Who can pray with you. Who can help you learn to follow and obey Jesus more fully. Find somebody today. Don't, don't walk away. Now is the time because the God who speaks this warning over us continues in verse 22 to say this, Mark this, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The warning is, is so clear. Salvation has, has been extended. Grace has, has been extended. The opportunity to know God has been extended to push away that, that hand means there's nothing else to hold on to. Don't think that God is like you or I, that he doesn't see, that he doesn't know your heart, that he doesn't see the, the brokenness and the sin hidden inside of us. You may think that you can fool others, but God is, is most high. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful, and there's nowhere to run. There's no one to run to, to hide, or to help when our, our, our hearts reject his offer for salvation. But the good news, the thing that we see is that the God who summons us, the, the, the God who speaks a warning to us, also extends salvation. He is the God who speaks, the God who saves. Uh, and uh, Sorry, the God who speaks, the God who summons, and the God who saves. This is what verse 23 says. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And to, to go back to verse 15, Call on me in your day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. 
The time to repent, to turn, and, and to trust in God is, is now. We need to turn away from our, our lip service, from just showing up, to hiding our sin, to trusting in, in God alone. Live your life in response to the salvation that has been extended or that you have received. Live obediently and with thanksgiving because you have been shown the salvation of God. You, you've been shown the person of God. So here's the, the last question I have. God is calling you to evaluate your life. We're called to look in the mirror of the Bible and see where we don't look like Jesus. Are you, are you doing that? Are you submitting yourself to God, to his words and his ways? Or are you trying to make your own? We're called to look to the hope of the gospel and see the hope that we've received, that it turns our hearts to thanksgiving and obedience. Uh, maybe you're here and this doesn't sound like it's, it's written to you. Maybe you're here and you haven't understood the need to worship or, or this idea of this, this law that needs to be fulfilled. Well, I, I would invite you to come and look closer and see the beauty of what God has invited you into. Hear this morning what God has, has extended your way. That you don't have to live with the hope that something will be good or that everything will be fine, but that God has, God has extended salvation to you. We don't have to manufacture thanksgiving or obedience. This holy response comes when we see our great savior, the one who has delivered us from our greatest enemy and the worst outcome, the, the one who has delivered us from our unholy mess of sin and death. When we see our position without God and the grace and the forgiveness and the love that he has extended to us through Jesus, the responses of our hearts and our lives is one of thanksgiving and obedience. So let me leave you with verse 15 again, call on me in your day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we respond, that God, you would be stirring our hearts, that, that we would stand at attention to the God who calls to us through Psalm 50, who reveals his righteousness, his perfection, and yet, has provided a way for us to be, be with you, even though we were your enemies, even though we were steeped in sin. God, I pray that we would listen to your warning this morning and that we would see your great salvation you've extended and that our hearts would truly be stirred, would truly be turned to worship you, to, to offer thanksgiving and gratitude to a great God. And I don't just pray that for this morning, I pray that as we go, that that would be our attitude, our desire is to live a life filled with gratitude and thanksgiving to such an awesome God. We pray this, God, all in your great name. Amen.